D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is uh, one of the most well-known preachers of the modern era. His preaching was described, and some of you may know this, as logic on fire. I have quoted uh, Lloyd-Jones many times in the past, and uh, Lord willing will continue to do so. And if you, by the way, have never read uh, any of his sermons, and, and many of his sermons are also on, on audio as well, uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to do so. I would suggest to us that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a reliable guide for our modern times. However, just because I quote someone doesn't mean that I agree with everything that person says, and I think all of you understand that. Uh, if we could uh, only quote people that we agreed with everything they said, uh, we could never quote anyone, not even our own spouses, okay? <laughs> because we don't agree with everything that everyone else says. And so there are times when our disagreements need to be pointed out. And today I would like to point out something that Lloyd-Jones said that I disagree with. Uh, perhaps maybe um, a little bit comical as it relates to the issue of the conscience Lloyd-Jones said this, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks, rings, wristwatches, spats, shoes instead of boots, or who carries a cane in his hand. The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, it has been a real curse to humanity. <laughs> if I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day, or with one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter because a man's soul is more important than his skin. When I enter a house and find they have a wireless apparatus, I know at once there's something wrong. Your five valve sets may do wonders. They may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. Um, the human conscience is a marvelous invention by our God. And, 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 I, and I think we need to appreciate, if only for a moment, how truly and honestly majestic the conscience is, how, how, how past finding out it is. And at the same time, it, it is unbelievably mysterious. The, the conscience is mysterious because it compels us so strongly to obey. And, and, and it feels as if I'm being compelled. The conscience is within, and yet it feels like I'm being compelled from without. That I'm accountable not to myself, but to something else. The conscience feels detached from us. I, I feel accountable. I feel like I must submit to my conscience. If you want to get an idea of the mystery of the conscience, just think to the last time you violated your conscience. And when you violated your conscience, you probably had one of those internal conversations where you had to justify your behavior to yourself. That sounds kind of silly to have to do that. I, I, can justify, I might have to justify my behavior to someone else, but why would I have to justify my behavior to myself? 
you had perhaps a conversation, an internal dialogue with yourself, trying to convince yourself that it really wasn't that bad what I did. For this reason, Calvin calls the conscience an executioner. He says that the conscience torments its victim. And the fact that each and every one of us has a conscience that is calibrated slightly differently can make for some interesting interactions together. Imagine someone of Lloyd-Jones's conscience attending our church who only bathed once per year, okay? That would make for some awkward interactions. Nobody would want to talk to that person, okay? It, it would make for some interesting interactions to have to be in the same church with a person who had that kind of a conscience. How then do we live? That's kind of the question. How do we live as people here, even in our own local church, here at Crossview Church, when the person that you're sitting next to has a conscience issue with something that you don't? How, how do you deal with, and, and, and this, this is every single one of us, although I think and hope as a church we would have more uh, overlapping and, and more in common with, with our consciences, Nevertheless, we are not perfectly, exactly attuned to one another in all the minutiae. Not even with your spouse sitting next to you is your conscience identical. And so how do we live as a people here in our own local church? How do we live in our own families when people have conscience issues with things that maybe we don't? And so dealing with these issues on a practical level, really is what the text is about today. We saw last week a lot of the theological foundation. Paul was asked, what, what about meat offered to idols? And he was given, uh, he, had, he gave some theological answers. And it's kind of like, Paul, what are you doing? Just get to the, the issue. And, and yet we saw that there was a really, there's an important need to ground all of our behavior in theology, all of our behavior in doctrine. And that's what Paul was instructing us with last time. Now, what we're going to do today, um, sermons typically will fall into one of two uh, big categories. Either the, the preacher will tell you the conclusions up front and then work those conclusions out throughout the message. Uh, that's typically called a deductive message. Or the, the preacher will tell you the conclusions at the end, and it'll kind of keep you in some suspense what about this? What about this? What about this? And okay, now here's the conclusion. That's what we call an inductive message. And so for clarity's sake, I'm telling you this because this is going to be a little bit of a longer introduction than normal, I think. But I want to list out some of the conclusions up front because I do think that it's going to be helpful for us to have those conclusions in mind as we go through the text. So, some, some principles, some conclusions about the conscience. And so I have six principles slash conclusions that I'm going to give to you right at the start so that these can be kind of anchors that we uh, anchor uh, our thoughts to throughout the passage. And, and I'm going to put them on the screen here so you can see them. Um, number one is the passage in front of us is addressing when a brother is led into sin by your liberty, not merely offended by your liberty. The conscience issues in 1 Corinthians 8 are not talking about, well, someone was offended, 
so you better change. Someone was offended, you better change. It's specifically talking about if your behavior causes someone else to sin, that's, that's, that's the conscience issue here that we're talking about. Number two, the passage is written to the, str- the stronger brother, not the weaker brother. Okay? It's primarily written to the, to the person who does not have the conscience scruple that the weaker brother does and addressing how that person should act and behave. That's number two. Number three, the passage is addressing a scrupulous conscience, not a seared conscience. I will explain this in a minute, okay? But it's not addressing the seared, it's addressing a scrupulous conscience. Uh, Number four, the passage teaches that intent to sin is sin. In other words, even if I don't actually sin externally, if in my heart I had wanted to and intended to and tried to sin, that is sin, because the motivation of the heart is just as important as the outside. Then, uh, number five, the passage assumes that any believer could have a conscience scruple, not just the whatever, fill in the blank, fundamentalist, legalist, concern, whatever you want to, to, to describe that as, um, because I think we're, we caricature this issue as only a legalistic issue and no one else struggles with conscience issues. Uh, And then the last one is the passage does not apply to issues taught in Scripture. What I mean by this is that we're talking about areas that are not directly addressed in Scripture. So do not murder is not a conscience issue, okay? It's not, well, my conscience doesn't bother me about murder, so I can do that. No, that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is teaching issues that are not directly addressed in Scripture, okay? So those are six kind of pillars here, and I want to address a couple of them here while we're still in the introduction. I'm not going to address all of them. The rest of them will come throughout the message. I want to address number four, where we said um, the passage teaches us that intent to sin is sin, okay? I want to flesh this out a little bit as we're beginning here. Today's passage will not make a lot of sense unless you understand one significant, fundamental Christian principle, and that is a principle from Romans 14 and verse 23. And that principle is that morally neutral behavior is sinful if someone thinks it's sinful. Let's look at the verse. This is the other conscience passage in Scripture, Romans 14. Whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If that person doubts, I don't know, uh, I, I think it's a sin to eat, but I'll, sit, I'll eat it anyways. If he eats and he thinks it's sin, he's sinned, even if it's not really sinful to eat that, right? Because he's sinning against conscience. So what, this seems to be a strange biblical principle to us. Let's, let's, let's uh, give an example here. Let's pretend that you believed it was a sin to watch television, Okay. I'm not talking about specifics here. I'm not talking about specific shows, specific movies that could be sinful, that are sinful. I'm just speaking in generalities. The evening news, okay, whatever. Let's say that you have a strong conscience scruple that says that's all of it is sinful in every form. Okay? So, um, in general... I think we would say it is not a sin to watch television in general. 
But let's pretend maybe you're a new believer and you thought that it was a sin. Let's, let's say that you believed that God believed it was sinful to do that. Now, let's say that you really wanted to watch television, and so you snuck around and you watched a television show. Even though it's not sinful to do that, you sinned when you did that. Now, how is that the case that you sinned when it's not sinful? Follow, we're, we're kind of, follow this, okay? It would be helpful to make the observation that you did not sin by watching television. You sinned by your willingness to violate God's word. You believed that this was God's word, and you said, I'm willing to disobey God. It was the heart motivation. Not that you actually violated something in God's word, but you were willing to and intending to violate God's word. God cares about the heart. God cares about the internal. In God's economy, internal motivation is just as significant as external actions. What you do externally is important. What you do internally is important. Right? This is why conscience issues become so significant in the Christian life. The stronger brother is tempted to just say, uh, just relax. It's just TV. Don't worry about it, okay? Uh, just go ahead and watch it. It's not a sin. And while he technically is correct that it's not sin, he's technically not correct because it is sin, at least for that person who's violating their conscience. He's encouraging the weaker brother to do something that he believes is sin, and that is sin. Let me give you a second example here. If someone attempted to commit a crime against you, but failed, how would you feel about that? Imagine that someone was scoping out your home and they were going to break in and steal from you. But imagine that they got caught just before they uh, were able to attempt the crime. Are you still upset with that person? Yeah, because their intent was to rob from you. Their intent was to take something from you. Their intent was to sin against you. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I'm not angry, except perhaps for a moment before I come to my senses, with a man who, tri who trips me up by accident. I am angry with a man who tries to trip me up, even if he does not succeed. Someone trips you accidentally. Oh, okay, it was an accident. That's fine. Someone tries to trip you, but fails. I'm mad at that person. <laughs> Why is it? Because he was intending to do harm to me. He had that in his heart. And that's the same thing going on with the conscience here. All right, let's address number two now. Number two is where we said the passage is addressing a scrupulous conscience, not a seared conscience. Your conscience can go wrong in two directions. You can go off the rails in one of two ways. You can have what we would call an overly scrupulous conscience, or you can have a seared conscience. A seared conscience is where your conscience doesn't tell you that something is sin anymore. So a murderer who doesn't feel guilty about killing someone has a seared conscience. His conscience should be going off. You know, warning, warning, this is sin, don't do this. But it doesn't do that. He has a seared conscience. That's one way that our conscience can go off the rails. Uh, on the other hand, an overly scrupulous conscience is when you are convicted that something is sin that really isn't sin. So the person in our passage 
who is talking about, who thinks eating meat is sin, that person doesn't have the seared conscience. They have the what? The overly scrupulous conscience. They think it's sin, but it's really not sinful. So this text is written to the person with the overly scrupulous conscience. By the way, the Puritans had a term for this. I think I've used it before. Does anyone know what the Puritans would call this? Having the scruples is what they called it. If you had the scruples, then you had an overly scrupulous conscience. Uh, There is some overlap here to what modern psychologists call OCD. Uh, And I did a whole podcast series on that topic, by the way. So if you want to learn more about that, um, you can listen to that. Um, But for the sake of today's message, we're addressing uh, one of the two possible errors. Okay. Now, I want to address point number five that I made. Uh, We said this, the passage assumes that any believer could have a conscience scruple, not just the legalist or the fundamentalist, so on and so forth. Uh, the reason I want to in- address this at the introduction is because conscience issues, they encompass a broader spectrum than we typically consider. I would guess, I would assume that most of us, when we think about someone who has an overly scrupulous conscience, would typically think of that in, that's the 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 extreme, legalistic, you know, fuddy-duddy, fundamental, that kind of person, right? That's, that's, that's who we typically think of. That is not the only category of people who have, who have conscience issues. Everybody has conscience issues. So I'm going to give you some lists here, okay? I'm going to give you a list. Now, the problem, and I might get some... Uh, criticism for this afterwards. I don't know. (laughs) The problem of putting this into two different lists is that there is some overlap, okay? I'm not saying this is only the conscience scruple of the conservative and only of, 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 you know, the, the, the other side. So there is overlap. I'm just saying in general, this is kind of how, how it lands. In general, we typically tend to think of these issues as conscious scruples for the conservative side, um, ladies wearing pants versus dresses, King James Version, uh, reading Harry Potter, music styles, rest on Sundays or not, alcohol in moderation, watching television, generally speaking. All right, so if you didn't know that there were conscience scruples that don't, that, that, that apply to maybe the more liberal there are, and I'm going to give you some examples. Drinking fair trade coffee. This is a conscience scruple, drinking fair trade coffee. Environmental concerns, like littering and recycling. Uh, one of my favorites is, uh, like, should we burn plastics? Like, I always throw my red Solo cup in the fire when I'm done at a bonfire, and I know there's a lot of people who don't like that, so I'm sorry if you don't like that. <laughs> uh, I know, I'm good. I told you, I'm gonna, after this message, I'm going to get in trouble for something. Okay, gas versus electric cars, okay? Uh, veganism, Okay. Save the whales, save the pandas, save the polar bears, 
anti-SeaWorld, anti-zoo, okay? Animal rights issues, endangered species, okay? Let, let, all, every single thing that I just listed, somebody has a conscience scruple on, on something here. Somebody does. And, and you, some of you may hear me read one of those, and you're like, that's not a conscience issue. That's black and white, John. <laughs> and, and then others of you, you hear one, and you're like, oh, that is ridiculous. <laughs> but, but we're all, listen, different, these are genuine conscience issues that people have. What, what, what my point is, is, is not to give you the uh, uh, correct, you know, position on every single last one of these. My point in bringing these up is to simply acknowledge that we all have this. All of us. I don't care who you are. We all, we all have different things that, ah, our conscience says this, conscience says that. Um, let me say, say this, because um, some, some people leave a church specifically in order to escape legalistic conscience scruples. They say, this church has way too many conscience scruples, and I'm going to leave this church, okay? If that is you, or if you know someone who's done that, I just want to simply inform you that you have not succeeded, and you will not succeed. All you did was trade one set of conscience scruples for another set of conscience scruples. Because wherever you go, you are going to find that this is an issue, that we all have things that we're wrestling through in this area. Conscience matters, conscience issues are here to stay. They're just here. And we got to learn how to work through these issues, and that's what the text in front of us is for. All right, number six uh, was this, and again, the rest of these will kind of come out throughout the text. Uh, we said this, the passage does not apply to issues taught directly in Scripture, okay? We're not saying that every moral question is to be dealt with as we see here in 1 Corinthians 8, okay? Our Scripture reading today was the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not conscience issues, okay? These are not matters that are up for debate. Uh, you don't deal with murder or lying or adultery or theft or blasphemy according to 1 Corinthians 8, the Bible has given clear commands in how we're to act in those scenarios. You can't say the issue of you know, homosexuality is an issue of conscience. Why? Because the Bible gives us an answer to that. This passage in front of us is applying to scenarios where we don't necessarily have a clear, straightforward, biblical principle. Okay? All right, that was a long introduction. So let's just read the text and get into this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? 
if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. We'll use the following outline today. Meat is neutral, meat might destroy, and meat is expendable. In verses 7 through 8, Paul uh, basically says that food is a matter of preference. That's, That's all he says here. He says, not all have this knowledge, which is a reference to last week's text. Not everyone understands that meat is meat and there's no really spiritual like demons or or doing some sort of uh, casting out of demons of the meat or whatever it is that they're doing there. Food is just food. And he says, everyone doesn't understand this. Not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not everyone knows that idols are, are fake. Some people think Some Christians falsely think that there is some sort of a demonic connection to this food, and I shouldn't eat this. And their consciences, the consciences of these brothers and sisters in Christ, prevents them from eating the meat. They say, this has been offered to an idol. I can't do this. Some Christians used to be worshiping idols in the temple, and now... Because of that past, because of that background, if they eat the meat now, they think that they're participating in idolatry. And that's a conscience scruple for them. And so, while eating meat is morally neutral, not every Christian realizes that. Or, if they do realize it, perhaps their conscience is kind of playing catch-up. You ever experience that? Where you kind of finally come to a conclusion where you disagree with your conscience? And your conscience takes a little bit of time to play catch-up, right? And, and so maybe this is the situation that they're finding themselves in. What we find, however, as most surprising in these two verses, is not what is said, but what isn't said. There is no command for the weaker brother to get his act together. There is there's no command for the, for the brother with the weak conscience to amend their conscience, This is addressing only the stronger brother. In fact, the stronger brother isn't even told, look, just slowly help your brother get out of this thing. There's no command in that regard. Why isn't the weaker brother encouraged to change? Well, I would say that I think we can assume that it would be ideal to change, but it isn't essential that this person changes. It is Important, but it's not the most important priority in front of them at the moment. Why? Because this mistake is better than the other mistake. Let me explain this. The overly scrupulous conscience believes that the list of sins is longer than it is. Right? They believe that there's more things that are sins than actually are. And the seared conscience has the opposite problem. It believes that the list of sins is shorter than it is. So you have the actual law of God, you have the actual word of God, and you have 
murder is sin, adultery is sin, this is sin, and this is good. And, and you have the correct list, okay? You have God's law and his word. And then you have our misperceptions of that. We, we can misperceive that by thinking there's more things that are sinful than are on that list. And we can misperceive it by thinking there are things that there's uh, less things on that than is. Um, now, it goes without saying that our goal as Christians is to be as biblical in our thinking as possible. If I think the list is shorter than it is, I need to make some modifications, right? And, and if I think the list is longer than it is, I need to make some modifications. However, one of these two errors has a little bit of a higher priority in correcting than the other. If you are going to make a mistake and you are going to err in one of these two ways, which one would be the better error? It would be better to think that something was sin that wasn't than to think that something that is sin isn't. It would be better to think it was sinful to eat meat than to think it's not sinful to murder. Is that fair? And so Paul doesn't have a super strong emphasis on converting the weak person. His emphasis is more on the strong person. This is how you are to act towards the weak person. Now, keep in mind, this is still an error. And I have to give just one warning for some people here who thinks that this is our safety net. And it's better to play it safe and I'll just think like a whole bunch of stuff is sin. Then you're putting yourself in a prison, in a jail, and that's really hard and not fun and creating a lot of other problems. So what Paul does here is he addresses the stronger brother and he does not address the weaker brother and say, fix all your conscience scruples. So when it comes to eating this meat, in light of this, there's more to consider, and that is to consider the overly scrupulous conscience of your brother or sister in Christ. As the stronger brother, how are you to relate to that person? This is what this text is about, how you, as the stronger person, relate to the weaker. And so in light of that, in verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us that meat might destroy Beginning in verse 9, he says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Stumbling block to the weak? How could that happen? For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? What happens if he does that? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. The biblical principle here, and the one you want to write down in the margin of your Bible, is self-control. Don't let your Christian rights do damage to fellow believers. Love is, as we might say, self-restraining. You have to say, what is this going to do to my brother or sister in Christ? 
We are to restrain ourselves for the sake of the weak. And while all of us want to claim the title of the strong, the reality is that probably if we were to look at our own hearts, we would see a mixture of areas in which we were strong and a mixture of areas in which we were weak. A lot of times it is a mixed bag. We are to restrain ourselves for the sake of the weak. And the weak, by the way, are not... Weak, weak is not synonymous with um, the, the, the fundy, fuddy-duddy kind of thing, right? It, it's not the synonym here. Weak, the weak are those who have a misinformed conscience... So they think something is a sin that isn't. That's who the weak are. Anyone can be weak in this way, regardless of where you are. Christian love, then, limits freedom. Christian love says this, and and perhaps this might be the summary sentence of this set of verses. Christian love says this, I can, but I won't. I can do this, but I won't do this for the sake of my brother in Christ. Now, how does your behavior hurt your brother? How is it that exercising your Christian freedom in this way hurts your brother? Well, go back to verse 10. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Verse 10 is absolutely central to the logic of this passage. If you take verse 10 out, this passage means something very different than what it means right now. Why is this central? Because of this. The scenario is very specific. You are told as a Christian that you limit freedom in what scenario, in what specific situation, if your freedom leads another believer into sin. In what way? By violating their conscience. If, if your behavior, if your exercising of your freedom causes another believer to sin against their conscience, you have led them into sin. That's the scenario here. So if a weaker brother says, ah, it's sinful to eat this meat. I, I cannot eat this meat sacrificed to an idol. And, and he sees you doing it. And there's this kind of peer pressure kind of thing. And he's like, I don't want to, uh, he's eating it. I, he thinks it's okay. And, and I'm here in front of the whole church. And if I, and he kind of, I'll just eat it. And he eats it, and he thinks that it's wrong. You've encouraged him to sin against his conscience. The principle then is that you limit your freedom when you may lead your brother into sin. Why is this important to understand this principle? What error are we seeking to avoid through a proper understanding of this passage. We are seeking to avoid what has been called 
the tyranny of the weaker brother. I don't know if anyone has heard that phrase or not. Uh, The tyranny of the weaker brother. This passage is not telling you to limit your freedom if someone is merely offended. If that was the case, if this text was saying, if you're doing something and it offends somebody, then stop doing it. If that's what this meant, then all of us would need to leave here, go lock ourselves in our homes and not do anything because everything offends somebody. And then even locking ourselves in our home would offend somebody. This passage is not saying avoid offending anybody. Oh, this person is offended by your behavior here? Then then do this. This person offended here? you, You realize what kind of a straitjacket that puts you in? And 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 this puts this this can put the church in a straitjacket as well, because the larger the church becomes, the more people in the church, the more things that we're offended by, and then the less that we can do, because because what happened? The tyranny of the weaker brother is that a individual or a church or a ministry is is driven by the conscience. Of the weakest person in the room, and that that's 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 difficult to be able to do anything. There is a difference between uh, limiting your freedom in that scenario and limiting your freedom when you are actually leading someone into sin. There's a, there's a, there's a big difference here. Um, this is also a reminder to us as a church, that we need to be careful against using the conscience excuse as a manipulative tactic, okay? We need to be cautious against this. Um, you can't say, oh, this behavior offends me. Uh, it's just my, because of my conscience, and there, everyone has to stop doing this particular thing. Um, that's getting close to that line of manipulation. I, I can do that with everyone. I can say, this offends me, stop. This offends my conscience, stop. This offends my conscience, stop. This offends my conscience, stop. It, the conscience is not a manipulative tool to be used to fulfill your own wishes and desires. The specific issue, again, is leading someone else into sin, leading someone to violate their conscience. Um, one reminder here I, I i'm going to give i'm going to give the other side of this okay um it's also not a call for us to be jerks okay this is not well does it lead you into sin well no I, okay well i'll do whatever i want okay we still ought to be kind to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. And if there's certain things that um, might bother your brother or sister in Christ, then maybe you just say, ah, I'm just not going to do that right now because I love this person, okay? But it's saying you don't have to be bound by the conscience of someone else is, is what the passage is teaching us. 
the issue is that you lead someone else to sin against their conscience. Verse 11 says that if you do this, if you sin in this way, then you've destroyed your brother for whom Christ died. He brings the gospel to bear in the situation. This is, this is gospel connected. One commentator asks the question, Christ died for this person, and you can't even change your diet? You see the, the, the difference here? Christ died for this person, you can't even do this one simple thing for this brother in Christ. Don't lead your brothers and sisters into sin. That's the point. So the conclusion then is that meat is expendable. Verses 12 to 13, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Um, how many of us could say that? I will never, I'll never eat meat again if it makes my brother stumble. Ah! <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> Why does he say this? Because all sin is ultimately against God. It isn't merely a matter of sinning against an individual person. It's a matter of sinning against God. It is more important that you build up your brother in Christ than you eat meat. That's, can we all agree that building up your brother or sister in Christ is more important than eating meat? It is. If meat is causing your brother to sin against conscience, then don't eat the meat. Fortunately for us, I think this is a very rare problem today, <laughs> and so we should be able to keep eating meat, okay? There are other issues that we may have to deny ourselves, um, but I don't think on the whole this is one of them. So where do we go from here? How do we conclude this text? How do we land the plane? Um, I, I want to get, I want to mention one thing in passing here as we wrap this up that we're going to see a little bit in more detail in chapter 10. In chapter 8, Paul says, you can eat the meat, but you shouldn't if it causes your brother or sister to sin, right? In chapter 10, he says, don't do it at all. How do we deal with that? Even more perplexing is that outside of 1 Corinthians, we have other passages that don't nuance it the way that Paul does. And the other passages explicitly say, don't do it at all. Acts 15, Jerusalem Council. It seemed good for the, to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. How do we deal with that? He said, just don't do it at all. He's not, he's not nuancing it here. They're just saying, don't do this at all. Revelation chapter 2, when Christ himself teaching against uh, the churches says, I have a few things against you. Uh, some there hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. The church was coming under condemnation because they were doing something that Paul says, it's okay if you do this. How do we wrestle through this? And I wanted to bring this out a little bit more 
and explored in 1 Corinthians 10. But I did want to address it briefly here because I think it is important so that we can fit all of this together uh, in, in uh, biblical harmony. And that is this. There is a difference between eating meat offered to idols and eating meat offered to idols in an idolatrous worship service. That is, I would suggest, the difference here. If meat is offered to an idol and it's put in the meat market and someone buys it and you bring it to your home and you eat that meat, that's okay. You can do that. Now, don't do it if your brother is, is, is led into sin by that, but you can do that because there's nothing wrong with the meat. That's what he's been saying this whole time, right? On the other hand, if you go into a pagan worship service and they are offering meat offered to idols and they are giving you that meat in an act of pagan worship, don't ever, 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 ever do that. Because you are communicating to everybody that even if you don't believe it, you're communicating that you do believe that this is good and right. The closest example I can think of to this today is uh, um, the Eucharist at a Roman Catholic church service. Um, If you have ever been to a funeral or a wedding in a Roman Catholic church, you will know that they offer this to everyone each and every time. This is central to their worship. They believe that Christ is being re-sacrificed. And I never, ever, 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 ever participate in that. Because I'm not going to communicate to this whole body of people that I believe what they believe about this. That's paganism. Now, if somehow I happen to get my hands on the holy water, quote-unquote, or, or, or the, the, the bread afterwards, I'd eat it. Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not really the body of Christ. It's, it's not, it's, you can eat it. But I'm not going to eat in that context. And I would suggest to us that this is the difference, and we'll see this more uh, in line with chapter 10 a little bit later on. So let me land the plane here with uh, four points of application. Number one, be sensitive to the conscience scruples of other believers and avoid leading them to sin against conscience. Just don't be a bull in a china shop. If you know that someone else in this church has a conscience scruple, and your behavior could lead them into violating that conscience, then just set that thing aside, whatever that thing might be. Number two, don't mock or condemn those with a weaker conscience than you, since why? Christ died for them. He brings the gospel to bear on this. He brings the the atonement, as we saw earlier, to bear on this. Christ died for that person too. So don't mock or ridicule or condemn that person because they may have a weaker conscience in a certain area. Uh, Number three, be willing to give up your liberty for the sake of your brother in Christ. Do not demand your quote-unquote rights. Number four, avoid the tyranny of the weaker brother by refraining from manipulating others with your conscience, but you may inform them in humility. Okay? 
You can inform someone, I struggle with my conscience in this area. Can you help build me up in this area? But you can't use that as a manipulative tactic to just get other people to do whatever you want to do. In next week's passage, Paul gives a list of rights that he has surrendered as an example for how we are to serve others in the church. 1 Corinthians 9, next week. Look at your, if you have ESV, you have a, a, a title in front of that where it says Paul surrenders his rights. Verse, chapter 8 flows into chapter 9. Paul says, give up your rights. And then chapter 9, here's a list of how I give up my rights for the sake of the gospel. And he lists those things out. This passage is part of a larger segment in 1 Corinthians that eventually is going to culminate at the end of chapter 10 in verse 31. Chapter 10 and verse 31 is like the umbrella that everything we've seen today falls under. What is 1031? Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How is my behavior in this situation serving God? Not how is it getting me what I want, but how is it serving God? How is it serving the Lord? May this be our heart. May we do all things to the glory of God. And if you are someone today who does not know Christ as your Savior, May I implore you to repent, to believe on the gospel. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And I'll be uh, in the back uh, saying goodbye as you all leave. And uh, please grab me, uh, and I'm happy to uh, talk more about Christ and about the gospel. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. Thank you for the gospel. We pray that you'd help us to uh, be intentional about how we Uh, look at our own consciences, the consciences of others, that you'd help us to uh, honor you in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.